Joel chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along. Uh, but I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 20. It's going to take a minute to get through all these, uh, but we can do this together. Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns, because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them, even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field, even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. It's a pretty serious text, right? When I say the word sin, what do you think of? Like if I were to say sin, what comes to mind? Just a moment ago, we read together the corporate confession of sin. It's a time for us to jointly acknowledge our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And so when you think about sin, when you think about confessing your sin, when you think about sin that's specific to you, what is it that you think about? Like, how uncomfortable does it make you to consider your own sins? When we think about sin, do you think about that one thing you did this past week that you don't want anybody else to know about? Do you think about the things you've done 
are the things you've thought about that would completely embarrass you if they were to be exposed? Like when you think about sin, maybe you remember stuff from your past that you consider to be your biggest regrets. Or maybe, instead of thinking about your own sin, when you start to think about the concept of, the concept of sin, maybe you remember the ways that others have sinned against you, hurt you in some way. Or, or maybe it's that you start to think theologically about what sin is. Ideas like missing the mark or falling short, failing to keep what God would have for us. Or perhaps instead of feeling shame and regret, you were just deeply offended that I would even insinuate that there's some sort of sin in your life. Like whatever it is that you think about when you think about sin, whatever it is that you think about when we try to wrap our head around this idea of sin, I very deeply wish and pray that we, that you would begin to grasp the seriousness and the gravity of sin. I think sometimes we treat it too lightly. Consider what Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice that that verse is very simple. But hear the weight of the first part. The wages of sin is death. Sin is a really big deal to God. Sin is such a big deal and God is concerned about it because the result of sin is death. Sin brings destruction and death and decay in its path. Someone that I follow on Twitter this week posted about this very thing. He said, sin always infects and spreads. It is contagious and cancerous, turning our own flesh against us and drawing others down around us. Our sins can never be our own, and you cannot undo the harm caused by your sin. Although there is grace for you, sin is no joke. Right, And, and I think that we would prefer to think of sin as not being a big deal at all. That it's just something that's just contained to us when we mess up. That we can hide it away. That nobody can ever see it. And it just gets to be our little ball of shame that we keep over here in the corner. And yet in reality, sin is destructive. And what it brings with it is death. It brings death in its wake. And so maybe we need to start thinking about sin as if it were a locust plague coming to eat and devour everything in its path. Did you hear the words of verse 4? Let me read them again. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. The rest of Joel chapter 1 is about the destruction that these locusts have brought to Judah. And like the locust plague that destroyed the crops, the devastating power of sin is total, destroying everything in its path. Like the locust, sin unravels creation. Sin plunges our life into chaos. 
and the judgment of the locusts swarming on God's people in Joel chapter 1 is really a picture of the devastation of sin just as much as it is a forewarning of God's judgment to come because of sin. A judgment that we know that Jesus ultimately bore on the cross in your place and in my place because the wages of sin is death. And we need to grasp this. We need to feel the gravity of the fact that sin is something much bigger than just doing something wrong. It's much bigger than just breaking a rule or breaking a law or doing something that Scripture forbids. That's certainly part of it. There's certainly a moral expectation that God has on his people, but humans are not just called to keep moral standards, right? The creation story of Genesis shows us that God created humans to worship him and to celebrate his creation and to fill his creation and to take responsibility within the life of creation. And according to Genesis, that's what we were made for, to worship God, to live in the way that he intended for us to live with him and with creation and with one another, to the world around us. And sin isn't just failing to keep a moral standard. Sin is ultimately failing to be human. It's failing to worship God in the way that he created us to do for the purposes that God created us for. That's what humanity was put here for, to worship God and to live in relationship with him and to live in relationship with one another the way that God intended as an act of worship. And when sin rules our lives, we are destroying that which God intended for his purposes. Carl Ellis Jr. said this, when we sin and say, I'm only human, we don't realize sinfulness is inhuman. And that God's original purpose for humanity didn't include sin. Right? Sin messes up everything. It brings death and destruction in its wake. We've established that. And my sin, our sin, isn't just limited to me. It affects my relationship to God. It affects my relationship to my family. It affects my relationship with you. And it affects my relationship to the world around me. I'm haunted by the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7, when I think about this, when I think about this fact. Do you know the story of Achan? If you're not familiar with the story, Joshua has led God's people across the Jordan River. They've been in the desert after they left Egypt for a really long time. They've come across the Jordan. They're finally at the end of the Exodus, and they're going into the Promised Land. And God has just given them the fortified city of Jericho. The city fell miraculously, Because of God, not because of something they did, but because of God. And no Israelites were recorded as dying whenever they took Jericho, whenever they conquered this city. But God gave special instructions to the people as they were going in to take over the city to not take certain things for themselves. The devoted things of the city were not to be touched. And so they leave Jericho... Joshua sends a small group of soldiers to a tiny city named Ai, thinking that it would be no big deal to take that city. And 36 of Joshua's men are killed, and they come running back in retreat. 
And so Joshua begins to call out to God, saying, why has this happened? Why did you lead us out of Egypt and carry us through the desert, only to have us come into the promised land to be defeated by this little bitty city? God lets him know ultimately that someone has taken the devoted things from Jericho that, that God had instructed them not to take. And it turns out that it was this guy named Achan. And because of his sin, 36 people died, and he died. Because the wages of sin is death. This story haunts me because it reinforces the reality that my sin is much bigger than just me. And that's part of what we need to understand as we start to move through this book of Joel. Joel's a really unique book for a lot of reasons. We don't really have a good time frame for when Joel was written. Joel doesn't talk about any kings in this book. He doesn't talk about any specific historical events that would allow us to date it perfectly. Some people say Joel was one of the first prophets. Some say he was one of the last. Some say he was a prophet right before the Babylonian captivity. Some people say right after. And either Joel references, references a lot of the other prophets throughout the Minor Prophets, or the other prophets reference Joel, because there are a lot of shared ideas and statements between Joel and these other books. But I'm not really sure any of that matters. Because Joel 1.1 starts with this statement, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. We don't really know who Joel is. We don't know who his father was. But we do know who's speaking in this book because the word for Lord that's used there in verse 1 is the Old Testament covenantal word for God that we typically would say Yahweh. It's the personal name for the God of Israel. The God of Israel is speaking through Joel. It's not just a reference to deity. It's a reference to the covenantal God of God's people. Joel's name itself means Yahweh is God. And Yahweh is saying in this book that his people are experiencing and will experience the day of the Lord. Part of what that means is judgment for sin. And part of what that means is the offer of repentance. As we move on through chapter 1, you see right away that verses 2 and 3 are about God calling his people to listen up to continue to tell the story to the generations to come, the story of these locusts like they've never seen before. That call continues throughout chapter 1. Listen up. And verse 4 is a reference to a recent natural disaster in Judah involving locusts. These locusts have come through and destroyed everything in their path. I've got like a one-minute clip from the BBC Earth that we're going to watch about locusts. As they fly, swarms join up with other swarms to form gigantic plagues several billion strong and as much as 40 miles wide. They will consume every edible thing that lies in their path. This is one of planet Earth's greatest spectacles. It's rarely seen on this scale, and it won't last long. Once the food has gone, 
the steady roar of a billion beating locust wings will once again be replaced by nothing more than the sound of the desert wind. Can you imagine walking outside to that? It'd be kind of crazy, right? These locusts have come through. They've destroyed everything in their path. They've eaten everything in their path. And ultimately, those locusts served a greater purpose as a pointer to something else that Joel talks about here, as a pointer to the day of the Lord. As we move on through this chapter, chapter 5 through 12 is this really interesting poem. You, you can't really see it in the English translation that we have. Uh, if we were fluent in Hebrew, uh, we would pick up on it probably a little bit better. Um, but this, this, these verses, verses 5 through 12, are a chiasmus. That's a poetic structure that kind of wraps and envelops the main point of a poem. So that like what you see in these verses is Joel gives us point one and point two and then point three, sort of like the tip of the arrow, and then he goes back to point two and then he goes back to point one. So right, I won't go into too much detail, but verses five through seven are the first point. And it's essentially Joel saying, there's something coming against you. It has already come against you. It's laid waste to everything. It's the locusts. Verse 8 is the second point. It's a call to lament and mourn. Verses 9 and 10 shows the third point of the poem. It's the main point, the tip of the arrow. And it's that this destruction is going to affect your ability to offer sacrifices to God. The locusts have come through and eaten everything. You're not going to be able to sacrifice. Verse 11 goes back to the idea of lamenting and wailing, which was point two. And then verse 12 takes us back to the first idea that something has come against you that has destroyed everything. Right, and I say all that to point out just a few things, one being that Joel is super poetic and there's no way we would ever see that in our English text. But another being that understanding the genre here is really important to making sense of a difficult text. But even more importantly... What these verses show us is that God is coming out against his people because of their sin. Because their sin is a big deal. Because the wages of sin is death. God is getting their attention. Verses 13 through 20 introduce ultimately what Joel is all about. And that is about repentance. Let's look at those verses real quickly. Verses 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in past the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Like, what do you hear in those verses? Put on sackcloth, lament, wail, fast, call a solemn assembly, get everybody together. Right in verse 13, Joel starts calling for repentance. In verse 15, he starts telling them why to repent, for the day of the Lord is at hand. If you go on to verse 19, Joel actually joins them in this repentance. And he's telling them why to repent. 
He tells them to repent because the day of the Lord is near. And this idea of the day of the Lord appears throughout the minor prophets. right? So what does Joel mean by it? When he tells them to repent because the day of the Lord is near. Typically the day of the Lord was thought of as a day of destruction for the resistant. Both for those who thought they were God's people and those who knew they were not. But it was also seen as a day of salvation for the repentant. And that shows up throughout the Minor Prophets, a day of destruction for the resistance, for the resistant, and a day of salvation for the repentant. And so the locusts of Joel chapter 1 are just a small taste of the day of the Lord that God is using to get the attention of his people that they might repent, that they might turn back to him. The fields were ravaged and the harvest was ruined. And this vivid evidence of destruction is the basis for Joel to warn Judah that repentance is needed. Right? And the message of Joel 1 is that natural disasters like locust plagues are forewarnings of far greater things. God wants their attention because he wants them to repent and turn back. And so, in light of this locust plague being a pointer to something greater, Joel is calling for repentance. He gets really pointed about it in chapter 2, which we didn't read to begin with, but I'll read chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Joel calls out to God's people to repent and turn to God because of who God is. Gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love and relenting over disaster. The basis for the call to repentance is that God is gracious and loving. And ultimately we see that culmination in Jesus. But it seems odd in this context because God has just allowed a locust plague to come through the land and destroy the crops of Israel in such a way that they don't have what they need and they don't have what they need to worship in the temple. They don't have the food and the wine they're used to having. They don't have the sacrifices they're used to having. There has been this temporary judgment for their sin, and they're being reminded of greater judgments to come. And so God wants them to repent and turn to Him. It's normal to wonder how the threats of judgment we see all through the minor prophets are consistent with God's love. I think it's normal to question that. But maybe we need to see something else. Maybe we need to see that these locusts are a gift. Maybe we need to see that these locusts are a pointer to God's mercy. Joel calls them to repent because of who God is. God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. Part of what we need to learn is that it's not God that destroys. God may certainly bring judgment, but it's sin that destroys. 
And the destruction of that sin left behind is ultimately dealt with on the cross. When we start to understand that, we'll start to see any earthly experience of God's judgment, like this plague of locusts, as expressions of God's mercy. God is trying to let them see where sin is taking them before it is too late. Sin is destroying them. Sin will lead them to a place of judgment. And instead of that, God is trying to show them where they're headed and calling them to repentance instead. Maybe we need to see that any experience of the painful consequences of our sin before it's too late is God in His mercy and in His love trying to wake us up. Maybe we need to learn to see that these locusts were not God trying to pay His people back for their sin. Maybe God was trying to bring them back. Which is the whole point of Joel. Repentance. Sometimes in order for God to bring us to our senses, He has to bring us to the end of ourselves. When we get to the end of ourselves, maybe we'll start to see repentance for what it truly is, a gift from God. Not to make us feel shame and guilt alone, but to turn us to God because He's gracious and mercy and loving. Like at some point in your life, you've probably seen a pastor illustrate the concept of repentance sort of like this, saying that repentance is like we're walking in one direction and we stop and we turn and we walk in the other direction. And that certainly captures part of what repentance is. Repentance involves both turning away from sin and turning to God in its place. But however, I think that illustration alone fails to capture the entire heart of what repentance is. In AD 66, Josephus, who was a famous Jewish historian... He was an interpreter for Emperor Titus as well. He went to Israel to sort out some trouble being caused by a rebellious Jewish group in Galilee. And when he gets there, there's a plot against his life by this group, by the leader of this rebellious Jewish group. And so Josephus brings the guy in, brings the leader of the group in and tells him that he would overlook his actions if he repented and believed in him. That sounds a lot like what Jesus says throughout the New Testament, right? But it was a first century way of communicating this. That what Josephus was calling this rebel leader to do was to abandon his ways of doing things and to instead trust in Josephus' way instead. And so when Jesus calls us to repentance, when Joel is calling these people to repentance, it's a call to say, yes, turn away from that sin and turn to God instead. But when you do that, part of what repentance is, is trusting that God's way is better. Trusting that what God has for us is better than what sin has for us. Trusting that God is doing something great for us, whereas our sin is only doing something harmful and destructive for us. Right? The point here is that repentance is not just changing actions. It's about changing the posture of our heart. It's about trusting God's ways rather than our own. And so the call for people in Joel 
was to turn to God with all their hearts because he is good. And that's the same call for us this morning. Recently here at Redemption, Ben has called us to make the real Jesus known by being honest about our failures, loving the way he loves, serving the city for the good of all, and inviting everybody into the family of God. To make the real Jesus known by being honest about our failures. Right, the call from Joel that we need to hear this morning is a call to be honest about our failures. And in being honest about our failures, to turn to God in repentance. Let me just leave you with two simple ways that we can start to do that. To be honest about our failures and to repent. First is this. Let's commit to ask God for a heart that is bent towards him rather than towards our sin. Let's understand that true repentance is a gift of God. True repentance is a gift of God. It's easy to view sin as a failure of performance. In reality, sin is a failure of intimacy and primacy. It's a failure to have a heart fully bent on God like God created us to have. And so let's ask God for a heart fully bent towards him. Second, let's begin to grasp how good and majestic and awesome and loving and merciful our God really is. True repentance comes by understanding the nature of the one whom we were created to worship. Like when we see God as glorious and holy and merciful and loving. The more we will see sin as something to weep over. When we have the right view of God. Repentance is less about feeling bad over our behavior. And more about feeling awe and delight towards God. Because he's holy and awesome and loving and gracious. And slow to anger. The more we glimpse the reality of who God is, the more we mourn for scorning that glory and that love. Missing out on that love. Missing out on that mercy and grace. The love and the mercy and grace that ultimately we see in Jesus. And his life and death and resurrection. Right? Let's commit to ask God for a heart that is bent towards him fully. Let's ask God for that heart. Let's understand that repentance is a gift from God that we can do that. And let's make sure that we understand how good our God really is in offering us that gift of repentance. Not not to shame us, not to pay us back, but to call us back to him. We're going to enter into a time of Response And during this time of response, in a second, the band will come back up and lead us in some songs and give us an opportunity to sing. Um, during this time of response, we have an opportunity to give. There's a giving basket in the back where you can put your tithes and offerings. Recognize that everybody doesn't give that way, so there's some other instructions back there on how to give. During this time of response, you have an opportunity to sit where you are and maybe begin this very idea of understanding that repentance is a gift. Maybe there's some stuff you need to deal with right now. And I would encourage you to do that.
And during this time of response, we have an opportunity to take communion. You can come down these side aisles, come up, take the bread, tear the bread off, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember the body of Christ that was given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Uh, The reason we do this, the reason we take communion every Sunday is because Scripture tells us that it's a way for us to remember what Christ has done for us and a way to proclaim to one another that we believe it. And so if you're here, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, whether you're a member of this church or not, we invite you to come and take communion. And so remember the body of Christ that was given for us, the blood of Christ that was shed for us, and proclaim to one another that the gospel is good and true. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had to be reminded this morning about how good you are, about how much we need you, about what you've done for us through the person and work of Christ. God, how you're not out just to shame us, but to call us to yourself instead. God, help us to have a hearts that are bent toward you. God, help us to treasure and to understand how good and awesome you really are. God, I pray over the next few minutes as we continue this time of response that Jesus would continue to be lifted high, that we would be drawn to you, and you would be glorified. God, we ask all these things in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.